So this is not part of the discipleship series. We finished that series last week. So this is not discipleship 2.0, though you could use what we're going to learn here today to help other people grow in the Lord with everything that we, we, we talk about in Christ. This is supposed to be a standalone lesson. Um, I, one of the things I had to do this past, I got to do this past term in school that ended on Friday was to work on a self-counseling project. Choose an area where I thought I needed more help than others, and then do really a deep dive into what the scriptures say about it, and keep track, journal, journal about it, and so on. And hopefully, uh, you know, the Lord would use that to help me to grow. And the area I picked was self-control, um, because it is an area that I need a lot of help in. I struggle with it and want to master that in my life. And the more I study it, the more I saw that self-control, lack of self-control, is insidious to humanity. It's everywhere. Uh, we see that throughout the Bible. We see that in our culture. We see that in the church in general. So what I want to do this morning is to take a brief look at, at the scriptures as a whole and see what they say about self-control. Then I wanted to look at five or six individual passages as we, as, as we build a way in which we can be helped by the Spirit to grow in self-control. So, just a basic biblical theology of self-control. That is, looking at the Scriptures as a whole and as the theme of lack of self-control, the theme of, or theme of self-control is there. Uh, though we don't find a theme of self-control, we, we do find a, a, a theme of lack of self-control among God's people. All the way back to the garden, now, Eve wouldn't control herself when she realized that the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was good to the eye, was pleasant to the smell, and looked like it tasted good. All of a sudden, she left her guard down, did not practice self-control, and ate of the fruit. Cain didn't control himself once he found out that God accepted Abel, but did not accept him, so he let it go, and that ended up in killing his brother. If you think about the generation upon which the flood came in Genesis chapter 6, you see, a verse, see that, uh, when you look at verse 5, it says that God is looking and see a, a people who had no restraints in their hearts and were practicing wickedness every day. So there, that whole generation is characterized by a lack of self-control that resulted in the destruction of the world in the flood, in the saving of only eight souls, as, first Peter, as Peter tells us. Remember what the refrain of the book of Judges is? There's no king in the land, and every man, every person did what, is, what was right in his own eyes. That indicates a general lack of self-control as well. People are just doing whatever their hearts tell them to, them to do without any restraint of any sort. David, the man after God's own heart, as Paul tells us in Acts chapter 13, lacked self-control when he couldn't take his eyes off of bathing Bathsheba in 1 Samuel chapter 11, which resulted in adultery and murder. His son Solomon didn't fare much better where when he did not take heed to what the Scriptures told him in Deuteronomy chapter 17 to not multiply the wise and his lost control and end up having uh, a thousand wives, as it were, in 1 Kings chapter 11. And if you think about the entire monarchy period, so from David all the way to the exile, is marked by 
a lack of self-control on the part of the kings of Israel and Judah, all the way, with the exception of, how many good kings in Judah? Bible quiz time. There's no good kings in Israel. There's some good kings in Judah. Let's make it easier. Name one good king in Judah. Josiah, okay. What else? That's easy. Huh? Hezekiah is another good king. Asa is another good king. I'm going to use all the family members. Because <laughs> yeah. you hope that somebody names them after king of Judah, they'll be a good king, right? <laughs> no, he has. No, no, no. No, it's caught. You don't count. Yeah. So there are seven good kings in Judah. And apart from those, and even those, you can see that the monarchy was, was, was just plagued by lack of self-control that led to the, the Assyrian um, conquest and then the Babylonian captivity of the southern kingdom. So as, as far as lack of self-control goes, the Old Testament could be summarized by Solomon's statement in the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 10, where he says, And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Whatever my heart desired, that's what I did. That's what Solomon says in the book of Ecclesiastes. And that's a good picture of the people of God in the Old Testament. You may have heard the name Ed Welch. He's an author, um, a good author, a good guy to read. Um, He does a lot of study on the brain. And he suggests that lack of self-control is related to greed expressing itself. Along with with lack of self-control, you're going to always find a greedy heart. Often the lack of self-control is the expression of that greedy heart. And in the Old Testament, lack of self-control often expressed itself as idolatry. Which, if you think about idolatry, always boils down to a worship of what? Self. All it boils down to worship of self. So this idea of greed makes sense here. Uh, Welch also says that at the heart of idolatry is recklessness, and it's not surprising that runway desires play a part consistently in false worship. If false worship is always trying to worship a God, or even the true God, in the way that we want to do it. Not in the way that God wants to be Worship is interesting that if you look at Deuteronomy chapter 12, it's a chapter on worship, and it covers two areas. It covers, God says, don't worship false gods. That's the one that we think about as false worship. But he also says, don't worship me, the true God, falsely, according to your own devices. Now, he gets to, to pick there. Now, when you come into the New Testament, the theme of idolatry is less, uh, less prominent. There's a shift here. Instead of idolatry being the main way that lack of self-control is displayed, now it's lust and sinful desires. That's the main way that that lack of self-control is displayed. If you examine the lists that Paul, especially Paul has in the New Testament, you will see that you often find that the sins listed are the result of an unchecked heart. And we're going to take a look at the one of those lists in a little bit. But if you look at those lists, which are never exhaustive, we have no exhaustive list of sins in your test. Maybe if you put all those lists together, you still can do more sin in more different ways. 
But if you look at them, they're always this manifestation of an unchecked heart. That's what those, those sins are. And all these sins flow from a heart that is ruled by its own desires, which is really what lack of self-control is. We're going to take a look at Galatians 5 in a minute, and we're going to see there that self-control is a result or a byproduct of walking the Spirit. So self-control is a fruit, is a byproduct of walking the Spirit. And in Galatians 5, we're going to see verse 16 in a moment, he commands the Christian to walk in the Spirit. And the explicit result of walking in the Spirit is not gratifying the flesh. Later on in Galatians 5.23, Paul includes self-control as a fruit of the Spirit. And just to state the obvious, the fruit is something that results from something else. In this case, the result of walking in the Spirit. So self-control and walking in the Spirit, whatever that means to walk in the Spirit, are related. Self-control is the result of walking in or walking by the Spirit. In, Peter, in, in 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter connects self-control to faith. Self-control is something that you do as a result of believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. And in connecting self-control with faith, Peter is also saying that self-control, biblical self-control, flows from a, a regenerated heart, since faith is only present in a heart that has been changed by the Holy Spirit. So an unbeliever cannot exercise Biblical self-control. So Peter and Paul agree that self-control must be a characteristic of a Christian. It is a standard or, or, or essential characteristic of a Christian. And then in Titus chapter 1, Paul makes clear that it is an essential characteristic of those who are going to serve in the offices in the church. Uh, self-control is. And then as we come to a close of our overall just systematic look at uh, self-control throughout the scriptures, we see that self-control is rooted in the heart, since all the issues of life flow from, flow from the heart. So growth in self-control starts with evaluating and protecting the heart. That's where, if we're going to grow in self-control, the heart is where we're going to begin with. And the Lord Jesus Christ taught that good, something that's truly good, only comes from a good heart. And you know, you know the joke that uh, you say, how are you doing? And then somebody says, I'm good. And then the joke is, no, no one is good but God, which is kind of reference to, to uh, Jesus' interchange, interaction with the rich young ruler. But in reality, those that have been regenerated, those that have been given a new heart, according to the scriptures, now have a good heart. And produce good fruit, according to Matthew 12, verse 35. And this is consistent with the promise of the new covenant, that the Lord will give his elect a heart of flesh that is able to obey his law. You can read that in Ezekiel 36, verses 26 and 27. But as we said earlier, the heart at the core of lack of self-control is a self is selfish greed. We see that in the Pharisees. Jesus uh, hints at that when he says that the scribes and the Pharisees are full of greed and self-indulgence. Self-indulgence being the result of greed. 
Paul's agree, Paul agrees with this assessment in 2 Timothy chapter 3, when he says that lack of self-control is the result of being a lover of self rather than a lover of God. And self-control manifests itself in laziness in the book of Proverbs, in sexual immorality in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, in anger in Proverbs 6, 16, and indulgence in Matthew 23, and drunkenness in Proverbs 23, among other sins. So if all these sins that are the result of lack of self-control, which tells us that like pride, lack of self-control is a root sin for other sins. So as we look at your as we look at our own hearts and our lives and see these other sins, we need to examine do they have are they fruit uh, leaf sins that result from another root sin? Now we do have to deal with leaf sins, but other leaves will manifest if we don't deal with the root sin that is result in those leaf sins. Does the tree illustration make sense to you? Okay, thanks. And then lastly, the Lord Jesus Christ is the ultimate example of self-control. And if you look at his life, it's sandwiched by two events that show that his self-control. Remember how his ministry starts? He's baptized by John the Baptist. The Spirit takes him to the wilderness. He spends 40 days there uh, without food. And then at the end of 40 days, what happens? He's tempted by Satan, right? And what's the first temptation? said, hey, you have the power. Turn the bread into, turn the rock into bread. And Jesus says, is able to exercise self-control under very difficult circumstances. Says that, and he says, I'm, more, I'm about more than just bread. I'm about the word of God. So here we have the beginning of his ministry, an example of self-control. And then at the end of his ministry, which you know, bookends a life of self-control. Remember the night before his crucifixion? He goes through several trials. He's, he's beaten. He's falsely accused. And through all that, he could stop that at any moment. And he doesn't. He controls himself because he's going to fulfill the scriptures that says that a, she, a, a lamb before its shears is silent. So here, right there, his life demonstrated by uh, self-control. Any questions about this overall 30,000 feet overview of self-control in the scriptures? All right, so now we're going to grab our Bibles and we're going to go over several passages in more details. And the first one is Proverbs 4.23. Proverbs 4.23, which says, so wait a second there, 4.23, keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it spring the issues of life. So, what, what is this passage saying? Is saying that the heart controls everything a person is or does. Everything in life springs out of the heart. In the book of Proverbs, Solomon says that the heart controls one's facial expression, one's tongue, one's mind, among other things. And if you look at the context of, of Proverbs 
the exhortation to keep the heart precedes the exhortation to live an outwardly moral, self-controlled life. If you look at verses 24 to 27, here Solomon describes an outwardly moral and self-controlled life. He says, put away from your mouth deceitful Put away from you a deceitful mouth and put perverse lips far from you. Let your eyes look straight ahead and your eyelids look right before you. Ponder the path of your feet and let all your ways be established. Do not turn to the left to the right or to the left. Remove your foot from evil. So these are all outward demonstrations of self-control that flows from the guarding of the heart in verse 23. Uh, Kyle and Delich are two German uh, Old Testament scholars that wrote a massive commentary on the Old Testament. And when commenting on this passage, they emphasize the importance of guarding one's heart by translating this verse as, above all other things that are to be guarded, keep thy heart, for out from it life has its issues. So above everything else that needs to be guarded, guard your heart. That's the emphasis that Kyle put here. And I know you know that, but I, I think it's helpful for us to be reminded the heart is a poetic way to refer to what is at the core of a person, whom a person really is. And in this passage, the heart is the ethical center of the person, is the center of morality. In other places, it's called the conscience and so on. It's a center that drives our actions, either moral or immoral. So... We are to guard it. We are to protect it. And Charles Bridges, which has a massive, well, it's one volume, several hundred pages commentary on the book of Proverbs, says that there's at least three ways that we guard our heart. There's three things that guarding your heart here in Proverbs 4.23 mean that we have to put in practice. It says the first one is this. We are to guard our heart as we would guard a spring that's the only source of water of a city. If that's the only place where the water comes from, you're going to guard it, you're going to keep it from being poisoned, because if if the source is poisoned, the whole city is going to be poisoned. You don't want it contaminated. We don't think about these things, but then something happens like happened in Flint, Michigan. Remember a few years ago when there was all the news because the, the water got contaminated with lead because of some pipes close to the source of the water or lead pipes and people were dying or, or getting sick because of it and people were actually then going thirsty because there was no water to drink they couldn't drink from the faucet, uh, the tap anymore. Well, that's the idea of the heart is, is that spring and that we have to guard that doesn't get contaminated. The second way, way that this idea of guarding applies to the heart according to Bridge is is that the heart is to be guarded so that nothing that is evil comes out of it. So we, we, we I don't know, I, I, um, I like a show on Amazon called Outpost. I don't know if you ever, ever anyone of, is a, I think, I, I would need to check with Sonia, but I think it's a fantasy show, falls under the category of fantasy as far as literature goes. It's a fictional world, and you have lots of fights and mythical creatures and all that kind of stuff. And you have sentinels that watch over this wall, that's the outpost, and they're always looking out to make sure the enemies are not coming in. Well, Bridget says, well, you also need to be looking into your heart 
to make sure that the enemies are not coming out of the heart there as well. And then thirdly, Brady says, we guard our heart by watching it. That is, by knowing what is in our hearts. That's one way that we guard. And all three ways of thinking about guarding one's heart are pertinent to developing self-control. We don't allow lack of self-control to contaminate our hearts. We are looking into our hearts so that these, the greed doesn't manifest itself. But we are also um, uh, protecting our heart from the enemy by knowing our own heart. Any questions on Proverbs 4.23? Okay, so move down the book of Proverbs, just a few chapters to chapter 19. And look at verse 15. 1915. So Proverbs 1915 says this, says, Laziness casts one into a deep sleep, and an idle person will suffer hunger. And you say, but there is nothing about lack of self-control here. It doesn't use the word and so on. The reason I'm including this here is that the ancient Greek translation of the Old Testament, something that we scholars call the Septuagint. You're going to see footnotes on your Bible referring to the LXX, which is the Roman numeral 70, referring to this translation called the Septuagint. So this ancient Greek translation of the Old Testament translated the Hebrew word group for laziness or sloth with the Greek word group for lack of self-control. So, and so here we have a translator which is much, who is much closer to the meaning of the original language because people are still speaking that language and they understood sloth and laziness to be lack of self-control. So we have the connection there. Uh, so, we, so if we're lazy, if we're slothful, if we're idle, it means that we're expressing a lack of self-control in our lives. Any questions on that? All right, so let's flip to the New, New Testament to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians 5. Verse 13. Verse 13 of Galatians 5 says this. For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. In the argument of the epistle of Paul to the Galatian churches, Paul has just finished a long session, uh, section dealing with freedom from the ceremonial law as represented by circumcision. False teachers had come into the churches in Galatia teaching that salvation came through faith in Jesus Christ and obedience to the Mosaic law, especially the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament. They weren't discounting faith in Christ. They're saying, yes, you have to believe in Jesus and you must obey the Mosaic law. And then Paul goes out of his way in this book to show that salvation is solely by faith alone, 
through Christ alone, by the grace of God alone. And having clearly demonstrated that the Mosaic Covenant is fulfilled in Christ and that its demands no longer have dominion over the believer, Paul clarifies what that freedom means. So you're free, he says. You have liberty. And Paul says that Christ has freed the believer in in chapter 5, verse 1. And this freedom is to be used to serve others, not to serve self. The freedom that the believer has here in verse 13 is not the ability to do whatever he wants. It is the ability to deny self for the glory of God and the good of others. So when Paul says you've been freed, you've been freed from the law, but you've been freed from self, you no longer are bound to serve yourself, you can actually glorify God in your service and bless others. That's what we're free to do. Not free to serve self, but free to serve God and serve others. And it is in this conclusion that leads Paul into the exhortation to walk by the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. Any questions on that? All right. So just down the page, next passage is uh, verses 16 through 24 of Galatians 5. Verse 16, Paul says, I say then, walk in the Spirit, or it could also be by the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, reveries, and the like of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, against such there is no law. All right, what we see here. First, as we said earlier, self-control is described as a fruit of the Spirit, that is, as a result of the work of the Spirit in the believer. Are you okay with that? The fruit is the result, not the cause. The fruit is the byproduct of something else. Okay, right? Um, now that got a little more technical here the Greek word behind the English word self-control and if you went to camp you're familiar with this one from Pastor Pine's egg crate example but the, the, the Greek word behind the English word self-control here is nope not that it is enkratia or it sounds a little bit like egg crate, and that was an illustration at camp. According to uh, uh, scholars, especially the, the, the New Testament Theological Dictionary, it says that this word group denotes power or lordship, and which express the power or lordship which one has either over oneself or over something else. And in the Bible, this particular word group is always used about one's power over oneself. So self-control is the exercise of one of a person's power 
over himself, over herself. And here, Paul says the result of, the, of walking the Spirit is a fruit of the Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, through the Apostle Paul here, contrasts the fruit of the Spirit with the works of the flesh. You notice that? In verse 22, he talks about the fruit of the Spirit, and he introduces that by saying, but the fruit of the Spirit, contrasting what preceded in verses 19 through 21. So the works of the flesh are therefore the anti-fruit of the Spirit. What we read in verses 19 through 21 is the anti-fruit of the Spirit, the opposite of walking in the Spirit. So in the list provided in verses 19 through 21, one finds the the exact opposite of self-control. So these things listed in 19 through 21 is the opposite of actually self-control that is a fruit of the Spirit. Now let me say this, on a related note, the person who is growing self-control must also be growing in love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and gentleness because the Holy Spirit refers to them as a single fruit. Notice that in verse 22? is the fruit singular of the Spirit. These things must be manifesting itself in the life of the Christian who is walking the Spirit. Maybe different intensities, different levels, but they all should be present there. And the connection is not explicit, yet it is clear as to how we bear the fruit that is the fruit that the Spirit produces. I hope Mrs. Wozniak is still okay in there. <laughs> uh, Paul doesn't say, do this and this. No, explicitly, but it's clear here how we produce the fruit of the Spirit, how the Spirit produces fruit in us. He contrasts, Paul does, walking by the Spirit, or walking the Spirit with gratifying the flesh in verse 16. In essence, the, the apostle is saying that if a person does the one, walk in the Spirit, he will not do the other, gratify the flesh. He then connects gratifying the, fle- the desires of the flesh with the works of the flesh in verses 16 and 18. So gratifying the flesh is the same as the works of the flesh. If you're gratifying the flesh, according to this passage, you're doing these things that are listed here in verses 19 through 21. So if, if, you're, if we're not walking by the Spirit, then we're going to produce the works of the flesh. And if not walking by the Spirit results in the work of the flesh, the anti-fruit of the Spirit, then what would happen if you walked by or in the Spirit? It would produce the fruit of the Spirit. That's the connection I want us to see. That in order to bear the fruit of the Spirit, we don't necessarily seek them, we actually walk in or by the Spirit. Are you following me so far? So the exhortation here is not to pursue the fruit of the Spirit. You don't find that anywhere in the passage. The exhortation is to walk in the Spirit. All right. So it's reasonable then to conclude that in order to grow in self-control, one must walk in the Spirit. Now, to walk here in this passage is not referring to the one foot in front of the other exercise of things. It's referring to life. And Paul in verse 25 of the same passage connects the two, walking and life, to show that they are connected there. 
to walk by the Spirit is to live a life that's controlled by the Holy Spirit. And immediately we think of some mystical exercise where we're sitting there mm, and the Spirit kind of controls us and we are these little puppets and this, that we don't do anything. We have to wait for the Spirit to do that. That's exactly not what Paul is talking about here. A life controlled by the Spirit is a life lived in obedience to what the Holy Spirit says in His Word. It's very little mysticism. It's a life of obedience to what he says in his word. So growth in self-control stems from obedience to the word of God. That's what Paul is teaching us. You want the fruit, you want love, gentleness, self-control, walk by the Spirit. What does it mean to walk in the Spirit? It means to obey what the Spirit says in your life. It means doing what the Bible says, which is the word of the Holy Spirit. Any questions on that? Katie Hoy. Ask your question, you'll see. Oh. I'm done talking about for, uh, Galatians 5, so okay. questions so are good. I feel like it's tempting to read the warnings and then conclude them that, like, oh, if I do these things, then I'm going to sin. Can you? I'm not that's correct. That's exactly what Paul is saying. If that's what reflects your life, you're not a Christian. If the movie of your life. If you, the movie of your life, not the picture. Okay, I think that's a important that if you're characterized by adultery, then you're not a believer. If you're characterized by fornication, you're not a believer. If you're characterized by idolatry, you're not a believer. You're characterized for sorcery. Interesting, the word for sorcery here. And do you have your Greek New Testament? Yeah. Can you take that? I'll come back to that. But what is, is that pharma, uh, that's the word related to pharmacology right there? No. 21. Is in 20 the second word in? Yes. Yeah, so, yeah, so, so this is the word for being high. Uh, because often in the ancient world, you access the spirit world by being high on some sort of substance. And if that's what, signif- if that's what uh, um, characterizes your life, you have no reason to think that you're in the kingdom of God. So Paul is literally saying that. If, that, if the movie of our lives, the film of our lives, shows that, if somebody watched the movie and at the end, oh, this person is an adulterer, not because he committed adultery once, or not because he was involved in pornography or struggled with pornography, is this is the person given to it. Not necessarily a person who struggles with it. Because in, in the struggle, there is sanctification. Does it make sense? On that is the lack of struggle into just giving oneself to it that um, shows that. So Paul is saying exactly what you're saying. That if your life is characterized by these things, there's no reason for you to think that you're in the kingdom of God. Now, the, God knows the spirit. God knows the heart. So we never, we, we don't make declarations about the heart. But we, we are called to make declarations about the fruit. Jonas. If a non-believer seems like they have these Spirit, or fruits of the Spirit, mm-hmm. would you say they don't truly have them, or is it a matter of common grace that they... They don't truly have it. They have some outward manifestation of it, but you can't be the fruit of the Spirit since they don't have the Spirit working in them. Right. Can you speak to um, the efforts to gain self-control through like, mortification practices? Mm-hmm. 
Well, I think morphic flesh is not a Catholic tradition. Is a, I mean, it should be considered just a Catholic tradition. It's a very much a Protestant or biblical tradition, right? Uh, 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 to mortify the flesh is the whole point of Colossians chapter 3, to kill the flesh, to kill uh, what's there. That's the point that Paul makes in Romans 13, 14, put on Christ and make no provisions for the flesh. But, yes, but what... The, the, in the Catholic tradition, that's done in order to gain favor with God. The Bible teaches that we exercise self-control because we have gained favor with, with God. Right? Paul talks about bringing his body, his flesh under control. And he's not talking about sinfulness, just, just talking about being a master of your existence, of your body, and so on. Having it in, in top shape for fighting, as in, in, in 1 Corinthians 9 there. Because he met Christ, because of the grace of God, not in order to achieve something else, not as a form of penance to achieve forgiveness, but because we are completely identified with Christ and have the Spirit work, working in us. So it would be like uh, in Luke 17, where the servant serves the master all day, and at the end of the day he says, there's no merit in this, I just did what I'm supposed to do. Right. So we're not trying to earn something, something with God by by bringing our bodies, our hearts, um, under control uh, of the Word of God. Okay. I thought I saw another hand. Yes, Adam. I just want to um, thank you for taking questions. This is great. <laughs> I always ask for questions. <laughs> All right. Uh, I want to take a look at one more passage really quick. And we will be done today. <laughs> First Peter chapter, Second Peter chapter one, Second Peter chapter one, five uh, verses five through nine. <clears throat> Peter says, "But also for this very reason, giving giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self control, to self control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love." For in these things are your, for if for if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten that the, he has he was cleansed from his old sins. See there, uh, Katie. See there the connection that if you're forgetting these things, which which means you're living according to that other list. You've forgotten who you are. There's no reason for you to think that you are going to inherit the kingdom of God. But here what I want you to notice that Peter in verses 3 and 4 describe the glories of the Christian's position in Christ. How he is in Christ. He's, in, he's, going, he's, he's part of the inheritance of God. He is standing before God. He belongs to God in Christ. And the Christian then is described as being in a state of having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. That's where we are. And because of that, in verse 5, we work hard. Look at our translation says, but also for this very reason, giving all diligence. Another translation says, applying all diligence. Uh, the ESV says, making every effort. Because of who you are in Christ, because of the abundance of the grace of God in your life, work hard at doing what? At adding all these virtues to your faith. Now, so the Christian is a believer. He has faith. That faith is not something that you put on the, fire, on the mantle and look, oh, look at my faith like a trophy. It's something that we put to work. 
and we put to work by adding all these things. And, and Peter doesn't mean add this first, and then when you master that, then add the next one. And No, these things are to be present in everybody's life, every Christian's life, perhaps in different levels, but all of them need to be present as we are working hard as adding to add these things to our, our faith. So this is not a passive endeavor. The Christian will actively work at growing in self-control. It's not a bad thing to make every effort, just like the Bible says we are supposed to do. Any questions on that? And just one passage and uh, less. 2 Timothy 3, uh, 1 through 5. And the main reason why I'm bringing this up is to demonstrate the connection between an inordinate love for self and lack of self-control. If you look at uh, 2 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 5, Timothy 3, it says this, But know this, that in the last days, and, and, and in the writings of Paul, we are in the last days. The last days is the time of the ascension of Christ to the resurrection of Christ. We're not going to take questions or debate that right now. Just take as a face value for right now. We are in the last days. Perilous times will come, for men will be lovers of themselves. And then he follows it with 18 characteristics, concluding that with rather than lovers of God. Is it several commentators, the, t- the leader, leader of which is John Stott, suggests that the 18 terms that Paul lists here is a description of being a lover of self. So lover of self is a big category. How does loving of self express itself? By all these 18 words that, or terms that follow. And one of them is lack of self-control. So lack of self-control is, is, an, is a demonstration of an inordinate love for self. If you struggle with, if you have struggle, or struggle with pornography, or, or drinking, or, or, or excessive drinking, and so on, usually the thinking go like this: I had a really good day. I was a really good boy today. I deserve a reward, so I'm gonna just do a little pornography for hours as a reward, or I'm gonna have a few drinks uh, more than I should as a reward, or I really had a bad day. It stunk, so I deserve some some relief. So I'm going to view some pornography. That, that's, that's nothing more than a rationalization of the love of self. You just wanted to give to yourself what you want. And that's an expression of lack of self-control. Any questions? We are supposed to love ourselves. No. No. The Bible states that we already do. We don't have to work at that. There's nowhere in the Bible that says love yourself. It says love your neighbor as yourself, assuming that you already know what that means. You, you all know what love yourself looks. Just instead of focus on you with that love, focus on your neighbor. Now, now the Bible doesn't, the Oprah says that we're supposed to love ourselves, but not, not the Bible. The Bible just says, you know what that is. Don't have to work on it. That's natural to you. Just use that to love other people instead. All right. We had more, but we're going to stop here. And oh, I'll say this in the last minute. Because self-control has defined by the Bible as a result of walking or living by the Spirit, only those who have been regenerated by the Spirit can truly have biblical self-control. Okay? <coughs> What's the implication? Two implications. Well, it was one implication with two parts. One is, secular programs that follow a 12-step program model do not produce biblical self-control. Because you are... You're following a God as you conceive of him. 
And who's that God that we conceive of? Ourselves. Also, it tells us that psychotherapeutical strategies like cognitive behavior therapy will not produce biblical self-control. Uh, 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 I've heard somebody say that uh, CBT or cognitive behavior therapy is like rearranging the furniture on the deck of the Titanic. It's going to look better, but guess what's happening to it? Right? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and for the practicality of it. We pray that uh, we all will be able to walk in the Spirit, in obedience to your word, that we might experience the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.